Hier komen we in vreemd. Welcome everyone to Red Flag Radio. This episode was recorded on Gadigal land. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. So today I continue my fascinating interview with Jordan Humphreys. He's the author of the new book, Indigenous Liberation and Socialism. I've honestly been so inspired reading this book. It's really made me proud to be a socialist and to stand in the long tradition of anti-racist activists, socialists and trade unionists in this country who have fought against the horrors of Aboriginal oppression. Um, So I really recommend getting yourself a copy of the book. Uh, And you can treat this three-part series that I'm making with Jordan as like your your own personal book club and and read along as we do. Um, And if you haven't listened to the first episode, definitely go check that out. In that, Jordan and I talk about the first part of his book, uh, basically the history of genocide and racist oppression of Aboriginal people. Um, And in it, Jordan weighs into some really interesting debates with settler colonial theorists who are are currently popular in academia. So definitely check that out. Um, Jordan is a socialist activist and has been for many years. He's a member of Socialist Alternative um, and he lives and organises here in Sydney. He's been researching and writing about the history of Indigenous struggles since 2019. And you can read, obviously, his new book, Indigenous Liberation and Socialism, but also he's written a whole heap of theoretical and historical articles about this topic, and I'll put some of those in the show notes. Um, So this episode, part two, we're talking about the history of struggle. So strap yourselves in, it's a wild ride. Our comrades across the world. Hey Jordan, how's it going? It's going well. Great to have you back for part two. I'm really excited for this episode because we're going to be talking about some of the most inspiring struggles in Australian history. I thought I knew about a lot of these already, but I was sorely mistaken. Honestly, I learned a lot from your book. And there are some episodes of Australian history that you've uncovered that I think most people wouldn't have heard about. So really exciting to talk about all of that. So let's start where you do in this section of the book after the end of the frontier wars when Aboriginal people began to struggle for their rights within Australian society. Um, A question that a lot of people might have, and certainly when I studied history, I was given this sense that the union movement was kind of hostile and racist towards Indigenous people and excluded them entirely. Is that an accurate depiction? Yeah, good question. Um, Well, definitely Australian society more broadly was obviously really racist towards Indigenous people. Um, But on the question of uh, uh, Aboriginal people in particular, the trade union movement had a much more positive approach than the way in which is often talked about um, and compared to how they dealt with some other questions about around racism and nationalism. Um, and this is something which yeah, I researched quite a bit, actually did a previous podcast talking a bit about the involvement of Aboriginal workers in the, in the Shearers um, Union and the Shearers strikes in particular. Um, but this is a really fascinating part of things, really. So one part of it is that there were hundreds of Aboriginal workers who were involved in um, trade unions in the late 1800s, um, particularly in the Shearers Union, because it was based in kind of rural areas, and that's where more Aboriginal people were, and there was more Aboriginal people working as Shearers than in other industries. Um, and they took a really active role in the union, so I found tons of like reports and letters and articles talking about the involvement of Aboriginal workers generally, and then particularly in strikes. 
Um, one of my favorite stories is about a guy called Andrew Stuart Stepney, who became the uh, strike leader at the strike camp in Cobar during the 1894 um, Shearer's strike. Um, and he led like white workers into battles with the police, um, with the bosses. And he was so successful in Cobar that the union actually asked him to go to Queensland to lead the fight at Bowen Downs, um, which was one of the big kind of battles um, during that year of strikes um, in the shearing station. So, yeah, there was definitely a bunch of Aboriginal workers involved. And that challenged a lot of the attitudes of white workers as well. So, um, kind of the most famous example is in 1891 at the Conference of the Shearers' Unions. There was a lot of discussion about the involvement of Aboriginal workers in the union movement, how they should um, lend them support you know, more generally around their struggles against racism um, and for more greater control over their land. So, yeah, definitely a different uh, picture than is often portrayed. You talk in the book about how from Federation in 1901, things got a lot worse for Aboriginal people and that a lot of that happened under Labor state and federal governments only like 15 years after the Labor Party was formed. So can you explain why, like what was the role of Labor and why did they take up those racist ideas and policies? Yeah, definitely. I mean, a big part of this is, you know, the same old story of Labor, right? Like they don't try and overthrow the institutions of society, overthrow the state. Instead, they think they're capturing it and they're kind of ministering um, parliament and the government departments. Um, but this always means compromising with the interests of those institutions and pursuing um, the projects they've already established. So um, in the late 1800s, yeah, into Federation, there's definitely a shift towards the kind of protection system that we talked about in the previous episode. Um, the the uh, emergence of the Aborigines protection boards of a much greater level of legal control over Aboriginal people and their rights and a kind of expansion of the control of the state. So, you know, when a lot of the protection boards were first set up, they did couldn't really control a lot of Aboriginal people because like in New South Wales, I think five people work for them or something. Um, so a lot of Aboriginal people would just kind of move further to the west of New South Wales and basically escape control. Um, whereas by the end of the 1800s and in, after Federation, they're given more funding, more control, more influence. And so they are actually able to bring in a lot more Aboriginal people under their control and authority. And the Labor government, uh, Labor, Labor Party, like you are saying, uh, starts to win control over state governments, eventually over federal governments in Australia, and they don't do anything to challenge kind of the racism of the protection boards. They go along with it to a very large degree. Um, and there's some opposition within Labor around that, particularly, interestingly, from politicians who um, have connections with the Shearers Union. I think some of that is the influence of those past struggles. Um, but as Labor becomes more and more just a governing party, those um, oppositions are kind of pushed into the background. Well, let's talk about some of the Indigenous organisations that started to form in this era. You say that until the 1920s, there wasn't really an organised movement of Indigenous activists in Australia and that that starts to change with the founding of the AAPA or the Australian Aboriginal Progressive Association in 1924. Can you talk a bit about its politics and its founder, uh, Fred Maynard? Yeah, definitely. They're a really interesting organisation. Um, and just as an aside, they were a very misunderstood organisation by historians for a long time, really until... Um, John Maynard, who is the grandson of Fred Maynard, um, he started uh, investigating more into the history of his grandfather and his organization. But before then, they were often written about 
exclusively written about as like a Christian kind of organization. Was how people often understood them. And partly was because there wasn't that much of a historical record and a lot of the links have been broken for reasons that will become obvious as we talk about them. Um, but in reality, they were a much more radical organization than that. So they really had two kind of main influences. The big one was um, the influence of a guy called Marcus Garvey, who was a very famous uh, campaigner against racism um, in the United States, but also kind of around the world. He inspired the Garveyite movement. Um, people might have heard like Back to Africa is kind of one of his famous slogans. Um, but he was an inspiration to kind of um, people of color all around the world. Um, and including here in Australia. Um, and there was a direct connection by a group of African sailors who were in Sydney who um, uh, met and influenced Aboriginal workers who worked on the docks there, um, including Maynard. And that is one of the kind of uh, background events that led to them forming this organisation um, some years later. Um, so they really took up the idea that they were proud to be Aboriginal, that they rejected all the racism of the time, that they... We're fighting, yes, for reforms and for greater rights, but they didn't want to just become like white people. So they rejected a lot of the kind of more moderate assimilationist kind of ideas, which some other Aboriginal campaigners took up, took up later. Um, so yeah, they're a real kind of radical force. And they did have some connections to the union movement, like Maynard himself uh, was a member of the Waterside Workers Federation. Um, and as I said before, that's partly how it became connected to black nationalist kind of ideas. Um, but unfortunately, at this time, their movement uh, was pretty isolated from the rest of society. So they did get hundreds of Aboriginal people involved. So it was probably the biggest Aboriginal kind of movement till the 60s. Um, but in terms of wider society, there wasn't that much understanding or sympathy for what they were doing. Um, and despite individual members of the group being members of trade unions, um, at the time, the workers' movement didn't particularly take up kind of their cause. And eventually they were uh, suppressed by the protection board and, and the police. So about 10 years after that, in the 1930s, more Indigenous activist organisations were set up that kind of replaced the AAPA. And this included the Aborigines Progressive Association and the Australian Aborigines League, or the AAL, set up by William Cooper. And you say that these organisations had a much bigger impact on the workers' movement than their predecessors. Why is that? Yeah, I think this is really interesting because it's not so much that they themselves were bigger. Um, in fact, there's a lot of evidence Mania's organisation probably involved more kind of Aboriginal activists within it. Um, uh, but it had to do with changes within the workers' movement itself, in particular the emergence of the Communist Party of Australia, who were around during the time that Mania's organisation were, but they were pretty small at that time, whereas by the late 1920s and 1930s, they're starting to become a more significant force on the left and starting to impact the workers' movement as well. And so that involves um, a cultural shift, I think, in the workers' movement and towards a more active kind of support for Aboriginal rights, and particularly amongst urban workers, which is one of the differences from earlier. So I talked a bit about how the Shearers took about Aboriginal issues a bit, and partly that's because there were more Aboriginal people in rural areas. For a lot of urban workers the question of like anti-Aboriginal racism, you know, was not on the forefront of their minds necessarily because they probably didn't know any Aboriginal people or interact with it in any way. And so it took a more kind of politicised approach that the Communist Party brought to the workers' movement um, to see the, the, the reason why you would take up the question of Aboriginal rights. 
Yeah, right. Well, let's talk more about the Communist Party. You devote a whole section of your book to them because you said that they're they're crucial to the history and to making workers' struggle a vehicle for the struggle for Indigenous rights. Why is that? Yeah, definitely. Um, a lot we could talk about. Yeah. Um, back as we go along <laughs> the history of it. Um, yeah, definitely. I think the first kind of aspect of it is that the kind of international communist movement was very uh, interested in questions of racism, of colonial impression, of imperialism, and took up those issues you know, all around the world and the different contexts of whatever country you're in. And so communists in Australia were very influenced by that. Like they often talk about the struggle around Aboriginal rights in the context of like the struggle against apartheid in South Africa or the struggle against the colonial domination of the Asian countries or the oppression of African-Americans in the United States is kind of very much how they see it as a part of this international struggle um, against racism and oppression produced by the capitalist system um, is a big part of what they would argue. In terms of Australia, um, the the Communist Party took up the question of of anti-Aboriginal racism and racism in general. So they campaign you know, for the rights of migrants against white Australia policy and so forth. Um, on the particular question of Aboriginal rights, at first it was mainly in the form of kind of like uh, propaganda expose kind of articles. So they would write about, you know, the horrible conditions of Torres Strait Islanders, you know, slaving away in the pearling ships, or they would write about, you know, some particular abuse of the Protection Board in New South Wales towards you know, an Aboriginal family, something like that. And they'll you know, write about this terrible thing and then say, you know, this shows the racism of the capitalist system, the Labour Party, etc. Um, but that's kind of where they left it at first. Uh, but as they started to uh, build up more of uh, activist space amongst uh, workers in particular, they started to move from just kind of propaganda articles to actually practical campaigns to support Indigenous rights. Well, I wanted to go through some of those campaigns, but first um, you draw a whole bunch out of the Communist Party's draft program on the Indigenous question, a document which they produce that starts to put forward their understanding of why Indigenous people are oppressed in Australia, what they should do about it, and, you know, strategies for liberation. So can you talk a bit about some of the strengths and weaknesses of that program? Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's a really interesting read. Like, um, it's a very radical document. So it begins with, a whole discussion about like the dispossession and genocide against Indigenous people, how it began with the invasion of the continent, how it was driven by you know, British imperialism, how Indigenous people were exploited, that yeah, the land was taken from them. And some of that might seem like, oh yeah, that's obviously the case or whatever for people in 2023, um, particularly left-wing people. But to write that in the context of like the early 1930s was very radical, <laughs> um, is not what like the kind of white middle-class intellectual world talked about at all. They mainly ignored the question or talked about it in a pretty kind of paternalistic way. Um, whereas, yeah, the draft program, the Communist Party really like denounced these crimes as horrific um, and argued that they uh, directly led to the current situation of Indigenous people being in such a poor, oppressed um, uh, scenario. Then from that, they put forward yeah, a whole series of pretty radical demands. So um, they obviously oppose like all the exploitation, segregation, um, legal inequalities that Aboriginal people are forced to face. But they also argue for things like um, that all Aboriginal people who are in prison should be released from prison um, and retried by juries composed of Aboriginal people because otherwise you can't say that they've had a fair trial because of the pervasive racism that dominates the you know, legal system 
and society more generally in Australia at the time. It's a very radical <laughs> demand, you know. Wow, yeah. No liberals are saying that today. No, exactly. Um, and they even put forward demands which uh, kind of prefigure the land rights struggle um, of, you know, of later decades, whatever. So one of the kind of more controversial aspects is they say that either the entire of the Northern Territory section to be, should be like given over to Aboriginal people as an Indigenous republic or several Indigenous republics, and they should have total control, basically on their own independent nation. Um, and some of that is influenced by some of the kind of weird nature of Stalinist kind of politics at the time, and I talk about that in more detail in my book, and that definitely has a negative impact on aspects of the draft program. Uh, but overall, yeah, it's a very radical document. Well, let's talk about some of their campaigning. This was their theoretical document, but they started to organise systematically around Indigenous rights in this era. And you talk about the first serious campaign as being the uh, in Northern Australia, particularly in Darwin. And this campaign meant that they came up against the established union, the, the Northern Australian Workers' Union, which had a racist and dismissive attitude towards like not just Indigenous people, but the whole multiracial working class of the North. Um, so, yeah, what did, what did communists get up to in Darwin? Yeah, it's pretty cool reading about this kind of stuff, um, uh, definitely. So, yeah, there's a number of communist activists in Darwin. And, you know, Darwin's a pretty small place um, back then, as it kind of is today, but even more so. Um, so, you know, even a relatively small number of radical activists have a big impact. Um, so uh, there's a number of um, communist activists there. Um, Maloney and Wardley are two of the main ones. And, yeah, they're involved in the workers' movement. Um, but very much on the outer of it, because they're trying to fight both for a more kind of radical left-wing orientation, um, but also an anti-racist one. And that's a big issue in Darwin at the time, because there's literally hundreds, both of Aboriginal workers, but also Chinese workers, um, Malaysian workers. It's like quite a multiracial kind of place in Australia, um, but a very racist place at the same time. Um, so this doesn't really work in terms of the workers' movement. They're like rejected by the more kind of right-wing Labour Party people who run the joint. And instead, the Communist Party activists focus their attention on the unemployed workers' movement and they organise a whole series of protests and stuff as a part of that. Um, and they take their kind of anti-racist ideas into that struggle as well. So always in their protests are raising slogans around um, combating the racism towards Aboriginal people who are often not paid any dole or less of a dole, like half the dole of white workers. Um, so through that, they kind of connect with a number of Aboriginal workers, um, particularly a guy called Joe McGuinness, who many years later would become a very famous Aboriginal activist in the Federal Council for the Advancement of Aborigines. And you said um, in your book that one of the slurs that gets thrown at the communists in the North is that they're a so-called coloured party. Can you explain that? Yeah, totally. That comes from some of the more yeah, labour-oriented trade union um, leaders um, in the Northern Territory. Um, yeah, and they, the Communist Party, just say like, yeah, we've got coloured people in our organisation. That's great. You know, that shows that we're actually, <laughs> exactly, we're actually about, you know, representing the anti-racist struggle, not just one section of workers against the other. So one other aspect of these campaigns that start to develop across Australia is um, is police violence and the targeting of Aboriginal communities. I think there's, that's something that people think is quite a modern phenomenon, you know, to campaign against police violence, deaths in custody, um, certainly been part of the campaigns today. But you um, can you tell us about that fascinating example from all the way back in the 1930s uh, called the Callendon Bay campaign? Yeah, definitely. This is... Uh, 
a really important campaign, um, which really begins when uh, the police find out about five Japanese fishermen who have been um, killed in the Northern Territory. Um, and the kind of suspicions focus on some local Aboriginal people um, who say that they're you know, in some kind of disagreement with the Japanese fishermen. Um, there's anyway, a whole history of kind of relations there. Um, but in response to that, the police in Darwin then announce that they're going to organize like um, a, a, a whole troop of police, so, like go into Armand Land in order to track down um, the Aboriginal people who did this, so they say. Um, and this leads to a big uh, a campaign amongst left-wing people, first in Darwin and then around Australia, to oppose the police doing this, because what they argue correctly is that um, this is just opening up the possibility of a massacre, right? The police, like, marauding around in, in this big kind of convoy trying to find whatever Aboriginal people they can in order to accuse them of murder um, raises definitely the very real possibility of violence against Aboriginal people um, across the Northern Territory. Um, and, like I said, the campaign begins in Darwin, and the Communist Party activists I mentioned before are very involved in it. Um, but then it spreads all around the country, and there's really quite sizable rallies. So in Sydney in the Domain, there's a rally of like 3,000 people to oppose this, which is a lot, you know, from the 1930s kind of in Australia um, to take a stand around Aboriginal rights. Um, and eventually the police don't launch um, the, uh, they don't launch the trip into the Northern Territory because of the pressure that's put on them. Um, unfortunately, there's a whole kind of story behind it. The church convinces some of the Aboriginal people to come to Darwin. Um, and they say, like, oh, nothing will happen to you. I just want to talk to you about it. And then they arrest them when they get there. And then there's a trial. And in response to that, there's also a big campaign around the country around it. Um, but a lot of historians, and not just kind of radical left ones, argue that the pressure that's put on the police to stop um, this you know, invasion into the Northern Territory uh, is really like a turning point. Like, after that, there's not these big police um uh, you know, uh, projects where they go into these communities on the same scale for quite a long time. Um, so yeah, it's really important that the left campaign in that way. Wow. Yeah. So another similar campaign that to me has modern echoes is about how to understand Australian history and, and the way that it's celebrated. So today, obviously we have the debate about Invasion Day versus Australia Day, but in the 1930s, there were similar debates um, about how to mark, for example, the sesquicentenary not a word you often hear, um, but the sesquicentenary of the arrival of the First Fleet. Can you tell us about that? Totally. So this is the 150th anniversary, I believe, yeah. of, the, of the First Fleet. Um, and, yeah, so the lead up to it, you know, in official society or whatever, there's a lot of brouhaha about, like, we're going to have this big day to celebrate how we love England and the British Empire and everything. That's the way it's talked about. Um, by the government and the media and so forth. Um, and a lead up to it, yeah, there's quite a big debate around it. Um, it's interesting, I think, how it shifts. So at first, a lot of the kind of the labor left and even the communists left, what they argue is, oh, yeah, totally fine to celebrate the first fleet, but we should also make sure that the um the struggles of working class people are integrated into the celebrations as well. And the Aboriginal people are a part of it, because they're a part of the Australian story as well. Um, but as time goes on, this approach is challenged by the Aboriginal activists, actually, because they announce that they're going to organise a protest um, during the, the celebration in 1938. 
and which becomes known as the Day of Mourning and Protest, um, quite kind of a famous event. And they say, you know, there's nothing to celebrate about this, very much echoing the invasion aid protests um, of recent decades. Um, Instead, they want to take a stand against all the horrible racism going on and point out that this day was the beginning of the dispossession and oppression genocide that Aboriginal people faced. Well, my next question partly relates to the role of the Communist Party in that campaign, actually, because they did take a pretty bad turn at around exactly this time that might explain some of their willingness to, like, take up Australian nationalism in that way and that that instinct to say, oh, we can, we can celebrate the Australian state but in a nice multicultural way. And you talk about this turn in the book as the shift to the popular front strategy. Um, and this isn't just something that happens in Australia. Communist parties around the world take this up. Um, but in Australia, it results in them drafting a new program called the New Deal for Aborigines. Can you explain that shift and, and what the document has to say about this issue? Totally, yeah. I think the first point to understand is the kind of broader shift towards the popular front, which, like you say, is going on um, in communist parties all around the world. And you know, there's a lot kind of written about this. It's a shift uh, not towards genuine Marxism, unfortunately, <laughs> away from some of the distortions of Stalinism. In fact, it's really a shift towards the right. So um, communist parties start to argue that the main threat to the world is fascism and there needs to be a broad uh, popular front, hence the word, um, of not just all the working class organisations, but the progressive middle class and even sections of the progressive so-called capitalist class um, to unite together to oppose the move towards fascism. And this almost always led to communist parties and moving their politics to the right in order to ch- chase this illusionary alliance with the progressive bourgeoisie. Um, And it was very much pushed by Stalin and the Soviet Union. So that's a general background to it. And the way this comes up around Indigenous issues is it starts to move the Communist Party away from their more radical and forthright positions that they had earlier. Um, So yeah, a little bit of it you can see during the 1938 um, uh, anniversary of the First Fleet for sure. Worth saying the Communist Party then do change track because the, the Aboriginal activists kind of take a stand, which is good, and they build support for their struggle. Um, but still, the reason why that kind of comes about is uh, because the whole popular front strategy is leading them towards a kind of left nationalism. So they're starting to say, like, oh, in order to form this broad popular front, maybe we have to talk about how being Australian is really important, and maybe you know all Australians should unite together against like the British Empire, or whatever, which is the big kind of baddies, and later on American imperialism. Um, fulfills a kind of similar role. The way that flows into this new program, um, which is put forward, is it involves them really toning down the radicalism of the draft program. So like I said, the draft program, and there's more you could say about it, but also talks about like how the struggle against racism is a struggle for socialism, how we need a revolution and a worker's state. The working class are going to you know, play a leading role in this kind of fight. Um, in the new program they adopt, uh, there's there's no mention of socialism or revolution or capitalism um, or the working class. So all that is totally junked. Um, and instead, it's a document much more oriented towards the kind of uh, ideas and politics of uh, middle class progressives who you know also care about Aboriginal people, but approach it in a very different way to working class activists. Um, and one probably the most negative example of this and how it impacts this new program, uh, is there discussion around issues around assimilation um, and Indigenous people? So um, earlier on, the Communist Party had really taken up the fight against um, you know, the racism Aboriginal people face. They argued that 
all Aboriginal people have a right to you know, express their kind of uh, Aboriginal identity um, against the the attempts to liquidate, undermine that by the capitalist state. Uh, but now they come up with uh, a kind of a, a two-part approach. Um, and this guy, uh, Wright, who is one of the trade union leaders in the Communist Party, who writes this program as a real pusher of this, and he says, really, there's two different problems around Indigenous racism. On, and he says, on one hand, there's Aboriginal people who live in cities and towns, uh, working class, you know, hopefully are part of their trade unions. And he says, these people are not really Aboriginal. They basically should liquidate themselves in the white society. And to the extent they should fight against anything, it's just, you know, a fight for civil rights against the particular legal um, barriers which they face um, coming from an Aboriginal background. But he says, but none of that really has anything to do with Aboriginal struggle, struggle against racism. This is a struggle to have the same rights as white people. But in the Northern Territory, in, you know, Western Australia, in the Aboriginal, amongst Aboriginal people who live in the kind of remote communities there, that's the real Aboriginal struggle. And there, um, you know, they need to fight for uh, the right to control their community and be separate from the rest of Australian society. So he sets up this real dichotomy between these two um, sections of Aboriginal people, which is a response to some genuine issues in the differences in which Aboriginal people uh, live and, and relate to broader Australian society, but is a very schematic understanding of that, and one that's very much influenced by kind of middle-class anthropologists and intellectuals and in the way that they conceive of Aboriginal people at this time. Yeah, and you can see how this idea can go along with that assimilationist logic as well. Um, and for Aboriginal people living in cities, it's not like they felt completely cut off, separate and different from the remote Aboriginal communities or from their demands. Uh, one question I have about all this is, you know, it's called the New Deal for Aborigines. And I assume, maybe you can correct me, but the New Deal part is taken directly from the Democrats in the US, you know, Roosevelt's New Deal uh, which the Communist Party of America, as part of the Popular Front strategy, got very into and campaigned for. Yeah, it kind of is. It's like at the time, for anyone who kind of reads about Communist Party stuff in the 30s and 40s, they're kind of talking about New Deals all the time. It's like this New Deal for women, New Deal for workers, New yeah. <laughs> um, and I think, yeah, it is kind of part of that Popular Frontist kind of language, right? Because, um, again, it's about appealing to the kind of more moderate trade union people, the more middle-class kind of activists who they like the New Deal in America, so they'll like this New Deal too. Well, it gives people a sense probably of just how conservative this turn in the communist parties was. You know, the Americans started campaigning for the Democratic Party, which was still like a segregationist party in the South at the time um, and is a capitalist party. So, yeah, quite a dramatic shift from the early 1930s. Yeah, and, that, and that's an issue in Australia as well because the Communist Party started to downplay their criticisms of the Labor Party and that has a pretty direct impact on the Aboriginal stuff because they're often the government who are oppressing Aboriginal people. Um, you know, one example I talk about about book is they celebrate um, the Labor government forming in Western Australia and then promoting a number of people into ministerial positions around Indigenous issues, um, even though these people are terrible and total racists and supporters of, like, the interests of the squatters and later would become opponents of the 1946 Pilbara strike. Well, let's talk about World War II. What impact did the war have on the struggle for Indigenous rights? Probably a lot of people would know that while it has been downplayed in the history books, Aboriginal people did serve in the military in World War II. 
Um, what impact did that have? Yeah, definitely. I think um, it had kind of a different impact on different sections of Aboriginal people. Um, so for a big chunk of Aboriginal people, it definitely opened up new opportunities and kind of raised their horizons. So um, one of the uh, good examples of this is in the Northern Territory where um, there was you know, military bases set up, of course, during World War II. And this led to an expansion in uh, employment opportunities for Aboriginal people and in better jobs, actually. So there was a whole series of Aboriginal people who got jobs on the military base, but they got paid a lot more than they were ever going to get paid <laughs> um, before the war or in some cases even afterwards. Um, and they're often treated with a greater level of respect than they were, you know, living in the stations with this you know, racist white landlord who's kind of overseeing them. Instead, they got to interact a lot more with just like ordinary white workers who, you know, could have racist ideas but weren't actually oppressing them. And so there was greater opportunities to open up solidarity and struggle then. And there's actually a number of workers in Darwin, white workers who like wrote novels and stuff about their time interacting with Aboriginal people at this um, during this period. So that was really positive and that definitely did play a role in some of the post-war um, struggles in Darwin and elsewhere um, by giving them a greater sense of confidence and like, yeah, she would have to be treated this way. Maybe there are some white people that actually will support us if we you know, take a stand fight more for our rights. Um, there's other sections of Aboriginal people where the war um, also kind of does eventually lead to more resistance, but kind of the opposite way, and that the war leads to greater oppression. <laughs> um, so that's really the case in the Pilbara, where they're, um, the Aboriginal workers in that region, they're not given any greater opportunities or more pay or anything by the war, um, which is very dependent upon um, the work they're doing to produce um, a whole series of uh, raw materials that are necessary for the war effort. And so instead they're like exploited even harsher um, and the military authorities kind of put more pressure on the landlords and the squatters to actually make that happen. Um, so there's things like there's military surveillance over them. There's all these like hilarious reports from the pre predecessor to ASIO where they're worried that because Aboriginal people are treated so bad, maybe they would welcome a Japanese invasion in the north and the west of the country. And so they're like they're surveilling them all the time to try and find if there's you know, imaginary connections there. Yeah, wow. Well, that leads us directly to the Pilbara strike, which I really wanted to ask you about. Now, on the podcast, Chloe and I have talked about the Pilbara strike before. Uh, it's one of the th strikes in our three great strikes you should know about episode, which people should go and check out. Um, so I won't ask you to rehash everything about it, but can you tell us why this strike is so important? Why was it one of the greatest strikes in Australian history? Totally. A number of reasons. The first is it just is a real game changer in terms of Aboriginal politics. So you have hundreds of Aboriginal workers going on strike at the same time, taking on the bosses, taking on the state government. Um, that's really important. Um, then secondly, like they win. <laughs> it takes like several years, but they do win. Um, and that's really important, I think, for inspiring kind of future rounds of struggle. And it becomes a real part of the kind of the legend and mythology of Aboriginal activism in the 50s and 60s and into the 70s or whatever. These people took a stand. Um, and then it's also important because of the role of the left. And this is probably the kind of best example in some ways of the real um, positive role that the Communist Party could play. So a guy called Don McLeod, who was a member of the Communist Party, a white activist, he was very much involved on the ground and helping the Aboriginal activists um, strategize and organize for the strike. And then when it took off, um, communist activists all around the country organized you know, rallies and petitions, 
uh, meetings, etc., to build support for the Pilbara strikers. And eventually uh, they won because of their own determination, obviously, but also because three years into the strike in um, 1949, the Siemens Union, which was a very left union run by the Communist Party, I decided to block all uh, wool exports from um, Western Australia, and that was kind of the final nail in the coffin for the bosses. The way of the revolution has So after this, a civil rights movement formed in Australia, and people might not think of it that way, but that's what it was. You know, there's a, um, obviously there's a civil rights movement that was very famous in American history, but can you tell us how a civil rights movement sprung up here in Australia? Yeah, I think this is really important because um, often when we think about kind of the fight for Aboriginal rights in Australia in this later period, you know, people date it to the Gringy strike or to the Freedom Rides maybe in, in 1965. Um, but earlier on, there's a whole movement for civil rights in Australia, absolutely. And while it's never on the same uh, mass scale as the United States, for sure, it's still uh, really important, um, both in its immediate impact and its impact into the future. So. Um, in the post-war period, and particularly going into the 1950s, there's just a, a flowering of kind of civil rights groups all across Australia. So there's different ones formed in like Sydney and Melbourne and Adelaide and Queensland. Um, and as these groups start to organise kind of petitions and campaigns, mainly focused on obvious kind of abuses and racist segregation towards Indigenous people. So you know, not being able to go to the pool, not being able to uh, um, get uh, good housing. Um, these are some of the main issues they campaign around, as well as kind of police um, harassment of Indigenous people as well. Um, they start to draw in a layer of activists, and the Communist Party play a big role in establishing most of these groups. And eventually they start to uh, coordinate more nationally, and they form a, a group called the, the initially the Federal Council for the Advancement of Aborigines, and then later they add Torres Strait Islanders onto that, actually a lot earlier than most um, groups do, and so they become known as FICATSI, um, the Federal Council for the Advancement of Aborigines and Torres Strait Islanders. Um, and, yeah, they organise a bunch of really cool stuff. Um, one of the examples I talk a bit about in the book is this guy Ray Peckham, who is a member of the Communist Party in New South Wales, an Aboriginal member, and he does, like, tours all across um, rural New South Wales um, campaigning against you know the segregation of Aboriginal people in hospitals, in housing, and schools, um, writing articles and reports of what's happening to them, helping um, local communities to to connect to um, activists in the city so they can bring more pressure upon state governments, and that plays a really big role in pushing back against um, the racism and segregation of the time. Yeah, that's so cool. So these are admirable attempts at organising, but it's probably worth saying these were done in quite repressive anti-communist conditions uh, during the 1950s and early 60s, you know, still the Cold War. Um, And often these were organised by a brave minority. But you talk about how from the mid-1960s, a big section of the Australian population starts to move to the left. And how does that affect the struggle for Indigenous rights? Yeah, definitely. And this occurs around a number of different issues. Like, the, the big issue, you know, from the mid-60s going to later 60s, um, so that's one of the center of things is like the Vietnam War, obviously, and that's connected to the broader radicalization amongst kind of young people on the university campuses, et cetera. Um, and that occurs, is related to, and kind of simultaneous to a broader kind of shift to left 
in society, definitely, and a move away from the kind of high point of the Cold War conservatives, conservative kind of era. That's starting to fade by, um, definitely by the mid-60s. And there's a, a, a greater sympathy for things like the civil rights movement in the United States, and that has an impact upon um, uh, public consciousness in Australia. And so that definitely starts to intersect more directly than with struggles around Aboriginal rights. And you can see this really with two events. One is the Freedom Rides in 65, um, which people probably have heard about. So very much inspired by the Freedom Rides in the United States, obviously. It's kind of a similar-ish thing where a number of uh, students at Sydney University um, tour around very racist towns in rural New South Wales, places like Walgood and uh, Moree, and they you know, try and do things like bring Aboriginal kids into the swimming pool and racists, you know, attack them and throw things at them and stuff. And it really brings the centre of Australian political discussion, the racism going on, that Australia is actually very similar to America and, and these other places, surprise, surprise. Um, and it leads to, you know, a layer of students taking a more of an active interest in this question and bringing a more kind of like direct action kind of approach. Um, so you see that with the Gringy strike as well in, that starts in 66, um, where Aboriginal workers walk off a wave hill, but they demand not just equal pay, but actually land rights. And um, this has the usual support from kind of like you know, middle-class progressive people, trade union activists, the Communist Party and whatnot. But a new element in it is that university students start to take action and they do things like occupy the foyers of offices that have connections to the Vesties, the, um, the company that the Gringia campaigning against. They get arrested at like marches on the street where they defy the police more. They go to supermarkets and they like try and get people to boycott all of the um, like meat products the Vesties are producing. And when the police try and stop them, they're dragged out of the shopping malls, things like that. Wow, yeah. So the um, the Gurindji strike had a massive impact on public consciousness. Uh, it's not like no strike like that had ever happened before in Australian history. You know, we just talked about the Pilbara strike. But why did Gurindji in particular have such an impact? I think there's kind of like two parts to it, I guess. Like one is, and this is kind of somewhat forgotten, is the cumulative impact of some of those early campaigns we're talking about before. I think there is like, you know, the civil rights campaigning by groups like Ficazzi, you know, in the trade unions, the left, whatnot, it does have, it does create kind of a, a greater basis of support for things like this land rights struggle. So when it happens, there's a layer of activists around the country who kind of know the significance of it and kind of get why it's important. Um, but the thing which really adds to that is this, this shift to the left happening in society more generally. And that, you know, by the kind of mid-60s when Gringy is happening is not that radical yet. It's kind of more like a slow shift to the left, but it's leading up to the explosion of struggles we see you know, from 1968 kind of onwards. Um, but that is gives the Gringy strike, you know, more of an impact across society. There's an idea that like Australia is this racist country. There's a really issue of racism here. The government, the media, they can't deny it, but we know it's true. And the Gringy have taken a stand against it and shown the racism that's going on um, and shown that there needs to be a greater appreciation for Indigenous people. And in a way which kind of challenges a bit of the older, more conservative approach of some activists, because the issue of land rights raises the idea that Aboriginal people aren't just fighting purely for like uh, civil rights to be treated the same as any white person. They've actually got particular rights they're campaigning for because of the history of dispossession that they've faced. So this all leads up to the 1967 referendum where 90.77% of the population vote yes for, albeit, limited Aboriginal rights. Um, can you explain how that happened? 
definitely, yeah. I think that's just the next step in the the process I kind of talked about before, I guess, is shifting to the left. There's greater appreciation of issues of racism in Australian society that's starting to filter through into broader layers of people. Uh, the reason why it's you know, such a big <laughs> support, 90%, is because there's very little opposition. So, like, the Liberal Party decide that they're going to support the referendum as well. So it's, like, right. Liberal and Labor, bipartisan support, um, to the extent where, you know, they send out the yes and no pamphlet like they have for The Voice, and there's only a yes side because right. there, there's no... It has to be a politician who writes a no side. There's not a single politician who wow. supports the no campaign. Um, so that definitely helps it. Yeah. Um, but it's you know, definitely positive despite, you know, being limited in a whole series of ways that so many people vote for this and gives greater encouragement to struggles in the future. Um, but it also has an impact in the sense that for a lot of Aboriginal activists, I know we'll talk a bit about Black Power later, the kind of limitations of um, the referendum, that has an impact upon them as well. They feel like, oh, this referendum passed in 67, people think, oh, now we're going to, really take on the racism of Australian society. Um, but in reality, not that much changes for a lot of Aboriginal people. And that you know, is also inspiration to fight in a more, more radical way. Yeah, well, let's get into that. So the emergence of black power, you know, people may not know this, but as with a lot of the stuff we've talked about, America had a massive impact on Australia and on Aboriginal activists here to the point where people here took up the arguments of black power that were being made by organisations like the Black Panthers in America. And there was even, you know, organisations here modelled on the Black Panthers. Um, and you talk about how the emergence of this black power trend was a real shift to the left and a break with the more conservative communist party slash ALP left and trade union officialdom. Can you explain that radicalization? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the first point, I guess, is it's a part of a broader radicalization that's happening in the time, right? So as I said before, there's been this growing kind of agitation around things like racism, Vietnam War or whatever. Uh, but from 68 onwards, there's a real radical shift in society. Um, so the Vietnam War campaign goes from being a pretty kind of like moderate, miltose, kind of, you know, have little protests kind of campaign to like the moratorium uh, marches, which are huge and really defiant and take on the police and are denounced by kind of official society on the campuses. There's an explosion of like a new radical left around kind of Trotskyist ideas and Maoist ideas and just kind of general radical kind of um, ideologies, uh, which are well to the left of the Communist Party and the ALP. Um, so that's what's kind of happening amongst a whole section of young people. Um, and this impacts, yeah, the emergence of a new layer of more militant Aboriginal activists, who, as I was saying before, are kind of disillusioned with um, things like the referendum that didn't lead to a more substantial struggle against racism. They're kind of grappling with the limitations of the older generation of Aboriginal activists who had this more kind of civil rights approach and they can see that there's real uh, problems with that approach, particularly, you know, going into the late 60s, early 70s. They kind of say, oh, maybe it worked back, you know, in the 50s and early 60s, more conservative than what could you do? But now we need something more defiant. And they're coming into contact with the kind of student radical left through the Vietnam War campaign. And then internationally, as you're saying, we've the ideas of black power, which are you know, very well-known at this time and are filtering through into Australia. So they're thinking about how can we apply the ideas of black power to the situation of Aboriginal people in Australia. Another thing I found interesting was the material basis of black power that you talk about in the book. Um, 
And, you know, we've talked a lot about strikes that have happened out on cattle farms and, and shearers' sheds, but the Black Power movement was really centred on urban areas, you know, places like Redfern here in Sydney. Um, and these were areas where there was a lot of Aboriginal people concentrated um, in, you know, high levels of poverty um, and where they were part of broader left movements that had um, developed in the city. And you talk about how there's this kind of confluence of a few different social bases for Black Power as well as Aboriginal radicals, there's student anti-war radicals, there's like new left socialists and um, militant unionists, all of whom are concentrated in cities like Sydney. Can you give us an example of what that looks like in practice, like all those groups coming together animated by the ideas of black power? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's so many good examples, yeah. uh, but one that I talk about in the in the book is in Queensland um, where you see the coming together of these different elements, like you're saying, the radical student movement, um, trade unionists, and I kind of, you know, we didn't talk as much about that, but a new um, generation of uh, more militant trade union activists, rank and file activists, in the wake of the 1969 general strike in Australia, and then the Black Power activists themselves. Um, so this happens in 1971 in Queensland, the University of Queensland, and it erupts around the issue of racism because the the all-white South African team are visiting Queensland as a part of, you know, a sports tour and there's protests planned to oppose them and this is a really big issue in Australia time, the whole question of South Africa. Um, and in response to that, the Queensland state government, which is a very right-wing government, uh, declare like a state of emergency in order to protect um, the all-white team. And at the University of Queensland, this leads to a lot of opposition and resistance to it. And there's huge mass meetings involving like thousands and thousands of students um, to debate what they should do in response to this. And they decide to have a 15-day student strike at the university. Um, And yeah, it's really, there's some great kind of accounts of this where they just have days where they're like hundreds and thousands of people are debating and discussing, you know, not just uh, university life, but the question of racism in Australian society, the questions of like socialism or revolution of what we can do to take a stand against the particular authoritarian government they're facing in, in Queensland, but the capitalist system uh, more broadly. Wow, yeah, you've, you've really got to read the book to get a full sense of just how cool this strike is, the Queensland University strike. I just found it um, so impressive and something I didn't really know much about. Um, now, something I do know a bit more about and that we talk about uh, incessantly on this podcast is the Builders Labourers Federation here in Sydney. Um, if people haven't listened to it, go listen to Jerem's episode of this podcast from a few months ago. Um, Roz interviewed him about the Builders Labourers Federation, and that will give you a bit more of a sense of what they were like. But Jordan, can you explain how these unionists these um, in the BLF were connected to black power? Yeah, definitely. Um, the good old builders labourers. Um, yeah, always coming through with the goods. <laughs> they are indeed, yeah. So some of this is uh, is kind of geographical, a bit what you were saying before. So the, the most radical wing of the Builders Labourers Federation um, you know, was in Sydney, the New South Wales um, branch of the union. Um, and they were just like quite a significant number of Aboriginal workers who worked as builders labourers um, because it was like a very casualised, poor, crap job for a lot of the time. And so if an Aboriginal worker who's you know, unskilled, um, that's an easy way to get into the industry and earn some money. Um, but then more broadly, it connected with the left-wing stance that the Builders Labourers Federation took on you know, the Vietnam War, um, women's rights, you know, environment, so many other questions. And they took up the questions of Aboriginal oppression as well. So 
you know, when the Gringy strike was happening, they had uh, Gringy strikers come to Sydney to speak at Builders Labourers meetings and you know talk about their struggle, raise money um, um, to help it along its way. Um, but when the Black Power movement arose in Redfern around people like you know Paul Coe and Gary Foley, um, who want to take yeah more kind of radical stance against racism, police brutality, etc., and the Builders Labourers take up their struggle as well. Um, and partly they know each other a bit through the Vietnam War protests and some of the other um, campaigns going on at the time. Um, so there's you know, a lot of kind of different interconnections, like the Builders Labourers build support for things like the Moratorium for um, Black Rights in 1972, which has a big contingent of Builders Labourers at it and is organised by Black Power activists in Redfern. Um, Bill, um, Builders Labourers also go on strike to support things like the creation of the block in Redfern, um, and they attend protests to support um, you know, various demands of the Black Power movement at the time. Yeah, and I know they also fought to protect some of the Moreton Bay fig trees in the Botanic Gardens. Like when the, the company building the Opera House wanted to basically destroy them um, at the roots and Aboriginal activists said, you know, you've got to protect these because they have a, a special cultural significance to Aboriginal people. And the BLF were like, yep, no worries, banned. <laughs> you know, um, And plenty of other bans that they put in place um, you know, we're specifically to protect Aboriginal land, housing and culture. Um, so in the 1970s, what you're saying is that things got even more radical than they were in the 60s. And this is reflected in like the moratorium march and the famous Aboriginal tent embassy. The one thing I really wanted you to talk about was the Wewa strike. Um, you say this is the last expression of that high point of the struggle in the 1970s. Can you explain what happened there? Yeah, definitely. This is a uh... A uh, very cool strike. Actually, did a a podcast for a, another podcast, the People's History of Australia, <laughs> about the WeWa strike. <laughs> uh, shout out to them. Um, that was a great episode. So, just if you want, you know, more detailed account. But basically, uh, yeah, this was an important strike by really exploited workers. So, um, WeWa, which is a town in country New South Wales, is home to a cotton industry, which is uh, which is a very weird thing to have exist in Australia because it requires like lots of water and people know about cotton. Um, and it was set up by like Americans from the South, um, in the United States who moved to Australia, set up a cotton kind of industry here. Yeah. Yeah. And they like really brought, you know, all of their, um, pretty hardcore racist attitudes. They had like armed guards at the farms and they just treated Aboriginal people like total crap. And they were like 80% of the workforce who came to work, um, during, uh, uh, the, um, chipping season, which is where they go around like chipping away all the weeds and stuff to stop the cotton from dying. Um, so yeah, very exploited Aboriginal workforce. Um, and a lot of them had either themselves or through their family connections to the Black Power movement in Redfern, because um, a lot of the Aboriginal activists in Redfern um, didn't necessarily um, come from Sydney or were born there. They were from rural areas and then moved there um, in the kind of 60s and 70s period. And so through those connections, they set up a a WeWa cotton workers, a cotton shippers, sorry, union led by a number of black power activists from Redford who came up um, to support them and help to organize it. And yeah, it's really cool. Like they build up um, for months through kind of mass meetings in the town, um, support for um, their struggle. Um, then they decide to uh, take actions. They go on strike um, and they organize like hundreds and then several thousand um, Aboriginal workers um, into this union to take a stand against this horrible racist conditions. And again, they also find support, unsurprisingly, from left-wing trade unions in Sydney and around the country who take action um, in favour of them as well. 
Yeah, I was going to ask, like in the book you sing the praises of the Black Power Movement quite a bit and talk about a lot of the wonderful struggles that they were a part of, but you do also have some criticisms of them and and some of the, and you kind of draw out some of their key weaknesses. Can you tell us what those were? Yeah, totally. So obviously very heroic and militant movement and a really important step in the kind of development of Aboriginal struggle. I guess some of the weaknesses which are connected to the weaknesses of kind of black power internationally, actually, and some of the weaknesses of the left kind of more generally in Australia at the time, um, is that one, they're all very kind of eclectic in a lot of their ideas. Um, so, you know, if you read some of the kind of articles and speeches and stuff by black power leaders, um, you know, it's not like they've got a very kind of uh, clear idea about what kind of socialists they are or like what their strategy is. So often they'll be influenced by like, yeah, the Black Panther Party in America, Mao in China, you know, the Viet Cong fighting, you know, for their freedom, but also like anarchism and like, yeah, a bit of Lenin, I guess. You know, there's like a bunch of random kind of ideas coming together. Um, and often they had, uh, you know, a positive approach towards the other radical movements at the time, the struggles against the Vietnam War, the student uh, kind of radicalism on the campus, the kind of the, the Builders Laborers Federation, et cetera. But it didn't necessarily they mean they had a kind of worked out strategy for how you're going to like destroy racism in Australian society. So they, you know, liked the BLF because they supported them, but that didn't necessarily mean they thought the white working class more generally might be an ally and struggle against racism. Um, they liked, indi- you know, sections or groups, or individuals from the socialist left who they worked with, but they um, could often say things like, oh, socialism is just like a white ideology. We need our own black ideology that we develop ourselves that's separate to this because, you know, Mark Seals is European guy developed this kind of European idea. What, you know, that might have little bits to say that's relevant for Aboriginal people, but we need to develop our totally own kind of theory. Um, and a lot of that was based on, you know, misunderstandings about the history of Marxism, as well as the kind of domination of the left by kind of a lot of Stalinist, kind of Maoist ideas at the time. Um, so, yeah, there's some of the kind of limitations and during the high point of the radicalization they don't kind of matter so much but when the struggle gets more difficult from the mid 70s onwards um having a clarity of ideas and of strategy becomes kind of more essential and the black power activists kind of struggle more on that period another question worth asking about the weaknesses of the left in this era is about the communist party of course i mean they were the biggest socialist group at the time and a lot of their activists did play a you know um, positive role in in some of these struggles but one of the points you make in the book is that they should have been able to positively relate to the very exciting development in um, that was the emergence of the radical black power movement, you know, to try to win some of these people to revolutionary socialism. So why do they fail to, uh, to, to do that? Um, some of it comes back to the history we were talking about earlier. So you know, like we said, the Communist Party take this kind of turn towards the popular front. And then in the post-war years, uh, they become even more conservative than that, actually. And part of the influence of that is the Second World War, where they take a very like pro-war approach, which kind of flows from the idea we all need to unite against fascism. Um, uh, then in the inter- the sorry, the post-war years, um, it's the period of like McCarthyism, of you know, the conservative kind of backlash against the left, and that pushes the Communist Party even more to the right. Like the conclusion they kind of draw from that is. Australia is a kind of colony of the United States. That's why there's so much kind of McCarthyism going on. And until there's like a broad popular front created, 
um, with the middle class and the, the patriotic capitalists, apparently, to defeat the influence of American imperialism over Australia. Until that happens, we can't really advance much in terms of the fight for socialism or the fight for workers' rights and the kind of create almost a two-stage theory of revolution. People have heard of that, but you've got to have kind of like a revolution to defeat the influence of America over Australia first, and then in the future you can have you know revolution to um, overturn capitalism. Um, and the way that kind of flows through into Indigenous... So can I just interrupt you there? Can you explain why that's ridiculous? Like, wh- why is it silly to think that America dominates Australia in that period? Yeah, totally. I mean, America obviously is a very influential um, imperialist kind of power across the whole world during this time. Um, absolutely. The problem with it is it kind of lets the Australian ruling class off the hook. So it's this idea like all the bad things happening in Australia are kind of because of the influence of American imperialism. And like I said, it's linked to this idea that maybe there's a section of the Australian establishment who can be won towards at least the fight for progress, if not maybe the fight for socialism in the long run. And so you end up uh, uh, softening the idea, um, the divisions between the working class and then these other forces in Australian society. And most immediately that flows through into the question of the Labour Party. Um, because they aren't actually these progressive capitalists running around the formal answers with. Um, so there's a bit of just kind of a stupid thing to have, but it reinforces this orientation. Um, uh, but they really do soften their approach to labor, like particularly after the split in the Labour Party in the mid-1950s, where the kind of most right-wing um, Catholic groupers uh, leave the party and they form their own party, the Democratic Labour Party. After that, the Communist Party starts arguing that Oh, now the Labour Party have expelled these people. It's open to becoming a genuine socialist party that's dedicated to, you know, to replacing capitalism with socialism. Um, so they just yeah, really liquidate a lot of their criticisms of it. And that's also influenced by some of the things going on in the Soviet Union, where there's this whole idea of the need for peaceful coexistence of the West in order to like um, you know, basically divide up the world between influence by the USSR, the US, and they shouldn't really be any more like military conflict between the two powers because the USSR is afraid it might lose that. And that leads to a more um, moderate and kind of reformist orientation by communist parties around the world. So communist parties, like on behalf of Stalin, had to be nice to their own ruling classes, basically, you know, to help form those alliances or at least not disturb them by being too militant. You can see how that would be conservatizing. And by the time the Black Power Movement comes along, the Communist Party are basically the right of the Labour Movement. Yeah, like a good example is the Vietnam War campaign, where like this huge radicalization around it I was talking about before, but the Communist Party are not like the vanguard leading that. <laughs> That's like, you know, the young student radicals. The Communist Party are arguing, oh, we need to um, demand uh, negotiations between the US and the Viet Cong, not an immediate end to the war. Um, you know, just the whole thing is about peace rather than a militant anti-war kind of position. They don't like um, the left calling for victory to the Viet Cong, for instance, they think that's too crazy of a position. So obviously they're not in a position to, and we're not really interested in relating to the Black Power movement. And they were like way to the right of Black Power um, and just thought, you know, these are crazy young people. Is that kind of what it was like? Definitely. That's their initial approach. Um, it becomes a bit more complicated when the Communist Party itself go through a split and the kind of most hardened style on a sleeve. And I talk about this in more detail in the book. Um, but yeah, at first the Communist Party are like suspicious of black power. And so this comes back a bit to how does some of these ideas flow through into the Aboriginal rights campaigning? Because as I said before, there's this thing for Katsi formed 
um, the 1950s, the Communist Party quite influential in it. And they really back up the idea that, you know, we need a pretty moderate, don't rock the boat, um, cautious approach to campaigning. So a lot of their campaigns are not like protests much. It's like we would understand it. It's like writing a petition to the United Nations to say, can you stop the Australian government being so racist? You know, a lot of it is things like that. Um, so the more militant protests of the late 1960s into the 1970s organised by black power are seen as a challenge to that. At first, the Communist Party are really like, oh, don't really like this. They print a bunch of articles uh, criticising black power in America. So it's kind of like them, yeah, a proxy kind of argument, re- like reprinting articles by the Communist Party in America, actually, <laughs> about it is how they kind of do it. Um, yeah, but then they do start to shift a bit as well, if, if you want to talk about that. Well, a final question, like what does all this history tell us? You know, there's a long way to go today to win Indigenous liberation. We talked about uh, previously how horrific Aboriginal oppression is today and by some measures it's actually gotten worse in the last few decades. So what lessons for the uh, struggle can we draw from this fascinating history? Yeah, I think this is really important because, yeah, if you're you know, watching the news, whatever the kind of whole debate so-called around the voice at the moment where you know, Dutton and all the racists are just saying such vile things and there's very little pushback against this racism going on. It can just make you kind of despair or be a bit demoralised uh, by the state of the world. Um, but this history of struggle and protest shows that we can fight against racism, actually. We can organise, you know, mass left-wing radical movements that say, you know, fuck you to this racist capitalist shit system that we live under and they can have, you know, really dramatic impacts. Um, and there's a bunch of lessons you can draw out of the particular struggles, like they will take place in their own context, of course. But um, you know, but one thing is that they were defiant. You know, they weren't just about meekly asking the government or political parties, "Oh, you know, can you please give us some more rights or whatever." And they demanded that they're going to have changes in the situation. And they were very clear that the problems Aboriginal Aboriginal people face is because of racism. It's not just like a bit of disadvantage or, you know, some uneducated ideas. It's a structural thing about the way our society is set up and we've got to fight back against that. I'm going to have any hope of actually, you know, winning some reforms in here and now, let alone a world of equality um, and justice more generally. So defiance is a big part of it, pointing to the structural parts of racism. Um, And then there's an important lesson in terms of who are your allies and who are your enemies. Um, So so many of these movements were able to actually strike a chord with like ordinary working class non-Aboriginal people um, who don't support the, exploit- the exploitation oppression that exists in society. And even if they can you know, be convinced of all sorts of right-wing kind of rubbish ideas because, you know, of who owns the education system, the media and the politicians and whatnot, they can also be won away from those ideas if people are willing to take a stand and fight back against the horrific system that we, that we live under. So I think both of those aspects are really important that you know, if we're going to rebuild a radical fighting spirit against racism today, then there's a lot of history and inspiration that we can draw upon. Well, thanks, Jordan. I really recommend people get this book, read the whole thing, but particularly the, uh, that chapter, the chapters about the history of struggle. They're really mind-blowing. Um, so, Jordan, can you give us a little taste of what we'll be talking about in part three of this series? Definitely, yeah, part three. Also very interesting. Yeah. So we're going to start <laughs> off by... Uh, actually kind of going back through some of the debates that came up in the 60s and 70s about um, Indigenous struggles um, and related to some of the stuff we talked about in terms of settler colonialism earlier on and how 
um, can we use Marxism to understand the particular place of Indigenous people within Australian capitalism and what that means for the dynamics of their struggles? And then from that, we're going to talk a bit about uh, the question of the Indigenous middle class and then the question of uh, the class struggle, socialism and revolution, how that relates to the struggle against Indigenous oppression. Cool. So, yeah, taking what we've already learned and trying to theorise it out using Marxism. I'm very excited for that part. Uh, Stay tuned and thanks for joining me, Jordan. No worries. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you're inspired by all this talk of struggle, I really encourage you to get up off your butts and get involved in rebuilding the socialist movement so we can fight against this racist system. If you live in a major city of Australia, there's probably a branch near you. Um, of socialist alternatives that you can check out. And if you go to university, there's probably a club you can get involved in there. So check out the link, you'll leave your details and get involved. I'll put that in the show notes. Also, we'd really love your feedback about the show. If you have more questions for Jordan, for example, please let me know and I I can ask him them uh, in part three of this interview series. And if you have any constructive comments or ideas for episodes, please shoot us an email. Um, Until next time, we have a world to win.